Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. In our gospel reading today, Jesus presents the disciples and all of us with two very important questions. The first question is the question of popular opinion. Who do people say that I am? Well, that's easy. You know, in Jesus' day, some say you're John the Baptist returned from the dead. That's easy. Some say that you're Elijah, you know, the forerunner to the Messiah. And then others, well, they say that you're uh, one of the prophets of old, calling Israel to repentance. We see from the disciples' response that popular opinion is all over the map. And today, detached from the scriptures, it's no different. As a matter of fact, it gets a lot more wild. Back in 2018, Matt Valigdon, who does all of our video announcements, and I went to Union Square and we asked people, who do you think Jesus is? Who do people say that Jesus is? And we got all sorts of very sincere and bizarre answers. Including, and this was really interesting, um, that Jesus was a misunderstood angel from out of space. He had a really compelling argument, too. I was like, maybe. So anyway, but uh, (laughs) the answers are all over the place when it comes to the world's opinion about Jesus, right? Then, Jesus follows up the question of popular opinion with another question. The personal This question removes all hypotheticals, and it cuts right to the chase. It gets right at the heart. And the answer to this question is the difference between unbelief and faith. The answer to this question is the difference between death and life. And unlike popular opinion today, there is no squishy gray middle ground. Jesus asks... Who do you say that I am? And it's really interesting. He poses this question. The setting is really interesting because they're in Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the north, uh, what we would call today the Golan Heights. And Caesarea Philippi in those days was um, kind of like um, a Gentile pagan respite in the middle of like staunch monotheistic Israel. And so all of the pagans who were, who were scheduled like to serve in Israel would go there for vacation. And the city was dedicated to Pan, and there are all these crazy gods everywhere. And Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And St. Peter delivers the right answer. You are the Christ. Yet... In Peter's mind, and in popular opinion of the day, that statement, the Christ, had kind of morphed into something. It meant like basically a warlord. A holy warlord who would throw out all of these dang pagans, uh, set Israel back up to its prominence on the world stage, and reestablish the kingdom of David. It was a means to an end. A means to an end. This is why Jesus tells the disciples, he sternly orders them to tell no one who he is, because he's not about to be someone's means to an end. And so then what Jesus does, and just imagine, they're walking down this esplanade, you know, these, these, these nice Jewish boys are like, what the hell are we doing here? You know what I mean? There's like pagan temples everywhere. 
And Jesus begins to teach them. And pagan temples everywhere, people are doing religion a means to an end. And Jesus begins to teach them what the scriptures actually taught the Messiah was. From the Old Testament. Indeed, the Messiah is the son of David. Indeed, the Messiah is the king of Israel. But this Messiah, quoting the prophet Isaiah, is going to suffer. This Messiah, quoting the Psalms, is about to be rejected by the religious figures of his day. Uh, This Messiah, well, this Messiah is going to die. And then on the third day, rise again. Well, my goodness, that doesn't fit Peter's profile, does it? Or anyone's profile, for that matter of what the Christ, what the Messiah should do. And so what Peter does is he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Imagine that, rebuking Jesus. I mean, we do it all the time. The context here and the way the Greek is articulating it is like a mother disciplining an obstinate child. Enough of that. Jesus, we've heard this already, and that is crazy. Are you kidding? Stop that nonsense. I mean, Peter does everything but slap Jesus' wrist. Now, I can just picture the disciples all looking in and probably shaking their head. And then Jesus goes right at Peter. And he doesn't just say, Peter, you're off, you're off the mark here. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on things that are divine, but on worldly things. Now here it is in this question, these two questions, Jesus basically opens us up to understand life as a Christian as it actually is, not that which is often presented, but as it actually is. And then he gives us a description of what life is actually looks like. And then right here, uh, he tells us what it actually means, what it means for you and I. And so in rebuking Peter here, and this is my first point, we actually get to see Peter, and, and this is really important because you and I, and I'm emphasizing the I here because I'm also in this boat, and as a matter of fact, I mean, oftentimes when I'm writing my sermons, I'm writing to myself, but we're no different than Peter. I mean, just think about your own life. In one moment, you can make a great confession about who Jesus is. And then in the next moment, well, you're denying him. You're angry at him. You're rebuking him because, you know, it didn't work out the way you thought it should in life. You can be thinking about God in terms of worldly heights in one moment, or or, uh, heavenly heights in one moment, and then you go right back down into the worldly. However, we, we learn from Peter... And this should bring us assurance, is that this is what the Christian life actually is. What we learn from Peter is that the Christian life, it may not be what you hoped for, but it's what it actually is. And here we see Peter as the great confessor, and Peter as the great denier, one and the same. And this is you and I as Christians as well. It's about as like St. Paul says in Romans 7, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I do the things that I shouldn't. Saint and sinner at the same time. It's not that you're 70% saint on Sunday and 30% sinner. No, it's 100%, 100% 
in this age at the same time. So this is what life actually is. However, the question becomes, what is at the root of Peter's denial? What's at the root, ultimately, of our denial? What makes the sinner tick? What makes the sinner in us rebel? Well, Jesus triggers his disciples, including all of us, with his answer. When he calls out to the crowd, he says, If any person would come after me, let them deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will save it. Now, everyone listening to that in the first century knew what Jesus was talking about. And nobody in those crowds would have said, that's an awesome idea. You know, there's our growth strategy. Take up your cross. No way. I mean, the Romans lined the streets with people on crosses so that you would know not to rebel against them. No one thought this was a good idea. For they knew and understood, as the great 20th century Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. You see, the root of our denial, what makes the sinner ultimately rebel, is the call to follow Jesus and die. (laughs) That's not my best life now. If we're honest, I mean, seriously, I'm talking about me here once again. I don't want to die. It scares me. You don't want to die. And we're always desperately, as a result, trying to save ourselves. If you read the breadth of philosophy, philosophers have historically broken down human existence and meaning into three categories. The first is work the second is recreation, and the third is worship. And all three of those things in our hands quickly become self-salvation projects. We use those things to build our temples, we use those things to leverage God, and we use those things as means to an end, ways we can save ourselves. For example, this is a big issue with New Yorkers. I can save myself through my work. I'm going to immerse myself in a 60-hour week, then I'll be successful, and then I'll have titles, and I'll make my way up the corporate ladder, and I will be fulfilled, and everybody will love me, and I'll have that corner office finally at that top building, and then I'll be happy. Or maybe recreation. I can save my life. I can save myself in being balanced, you know, immersing myself in recreation. I'll be rested. I'll understand fine wines. I'll lose 25 pounds. Talking about me, not you. And uh, I'll lose 25 pounds, and then, and then I'll be happy, you know? And religion. Religion is notorious for this. You know, being a means to an end, a means to save yourself. And isn't that interesting? Jesus is giving this teaching in Caesarea Philippi with all of these temples and these pagans making their sacrifices to God, trying to save themselves. And this sort of nonsense creeps into Christianity all the time. And it creeps into sermons, and then all of a sudden sermons become about, you know, all of this advice 
on how you can take up your cross and really make yourself happy and really make Jesus happy. It's interesting that Jesus gives his sermon in the midst of all of these pagan idols because he is reminding everybody here that God is not a means to your end. Rather, he is the end in and of itself. This is my second point. Like Peter, you and I are totally fine with the Messiah minus the suffering. You and I are totally fine with the Messiah minus the dying and rising for our salvation. You and I are totally cool with the Messiah minus the cross, unless it looks great on jewelry. Uh, Because ultimately, you and I, everybody wants to save themselves. And we want to save ourselves even if it's by paying God back some way. And this is the thing. We want to do this because the cross testifies. It testifies that our wound and our offense is so great that it needs to be atoned for. I mean, atonement is all over our culture. What do you think is at the foundation of cancel culture? We need to atone for something. And the cross reminds us of how great that offense is. Yet the cross also, with Christ upon it, testifies that God's grace is greater. It testifies that God's mercy is greater and his love for you is greater. And it blows our mind that ultimately, through Jesus' death, God freely and ultimately destroys our death to give us eternal life. So then what does this practically look like? How does this play out in your life as you take up your cross now and follow Jesus? Well, I've been listening as of late to a lot of late 90s, early 2000 metal bands, this week especially. You haven't? And, uh, um, and, but one of the reasons why is that music had a huge impact on me during um, uh, the early 2000s, especially around 9-11. And this is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And actually, my first sermon ever preached in this parish as the curate was on the fifth anniversary of 9-11. And I've led for the last 15 years the service at the precinct, given the benediction there. But one of my favorite Midwest metal bands uh, of that time was a band called Disturbed. Now, they've recently made a real comeback, especially in Iowa and southern Illinois. And uh, on my Spotify playlist. But, uh, so, but uh, they're making a comeback. But they have a song entitled The Light, which theologically speaking is about 85% correct, which is amazing when you think what's going on in this country. But it's amazing. And their chorus to this song, it goes like this. When you think all is forsaken, listen to me now. All's not forsaken. You need not feel broken again. Now, here's the money line. Sometimes darkness can show you the light. And on 9-11, we were all reminded that darkness, real evil exists in this world. We're not all basically getting good. Yet at the same time, through death and destruction, real darkness, Americans, the whole world saw some light what real bravery and courage looked like as those New York police department and fire department officers ran into that destruction to save people. But the cross is about as dark as it gets. 
It doesn't get any darker where the Son of Man died for sinful humanity. But in that darkness on a Good Friday, we saw the light of the world that has entered into it, and darkness has not, nor will it ever overcome it. Practically, what this means for your life is this. Real life has nothing to do with blessing in human terms. And rather, everything in a real way to do with loss. Jesus on the cross, rejected, suffering and dying, proclaims to us that God is not always found in the gaining, but he's oftentimes found in the suffering and in the dying. And God is in the losing so that actually you can be finally freed up in life, freed up to serve your neighbor right where you're at. Indeed, darkness, sometimes darkness can show you the light. And to take up your cross and follow Jesus, what that ultimately means is freedom. Real freedom, because since you've lost your life, what else is there to lose? You and I have been raised from the dead already by virtue of our baptisms, and now we can confess our sins to God and our neighbor. We can live our life in freedom, knowing that we have been totally forgiven. And it means you can rest in the fact that you don't need to impress anyone because the one person in the universe that needs to be impressed already is your father and already refers to you as his son and daughters. And so you can take suffering and disappointment with patience and grace. And ultimately, as you die, you can say with your last breath, with a sure and certain hope in the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's my Messiah. And this is my third point. To take up your cross, to lose your life, is ultimately to gain your life. It's to enjoy your forgiveness, because we're freed from ourselves. Not broken, but truly forgiven living boldly and confidently in the cross of Christ. So, as we come to Holy Communion, or probably more appropriately, as Holy Communion comes to you, feast on the bread that is his body. And remember, your life has been lost, but more importantly, your life has been found already in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.